My guest is Paul Tucker. So Paul Tucker is a fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School and a former deputy governor of the Bank of England. His latest book is called Global Discord, Values and Power in a Fractured World Order. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. I should say welcome back. Oh, it's really nice to be back. Thanks for having me, Paul. Right. So this is quite a, a, a dense, heavy and a very serious book, extremely comprehensive and wide ranging, uh, all about what you call geoeconomics within geopolitics. Uh, before we come on to some of the scenarios you've been sketching out, obviously, you spend a great deal of time thinking about these kind of things. So what prompted you on this occasion, since you've written books in the past, what prompted you, motivated you to write this particular book? Two things, really. I mean, one was just a sense that our generation, any, anybody that has served in power or been a commentator on power, government over the past decades, has been able to take for granted peaceful, peaceful coexistence among the major powers. And I think that's it's well before the Ukraine war. I came to think that this was something not to take for granted. And so the, and it, it always seemed to me, or long seemed to me, that the rise of China would change the, would change the world in profound ways, um, which we will discuss. The, the other thing is that my first book, having been about um, constitutional democracies delegating lots of power to central banks and regulators and others that don't have to go and answer in parliaments in quite the same way and don't stand for election, I, I, there's a kind of parallel with our governments having pooled a lot of power and and delegated a lot of power to international organizations. And of course, the EU is a special case of that. But even, even with um, the EU effectively um, delegates power and pools power in, in the IMF, Basel, the United Nations, um, the International Court, um, and so on. And I thought that the... The shared thing with my previous book is how much power can shift away from parliaments without the people getting a bit fed up. <laughs> right. So your book is the starting premises we're living in a fragmented world. I think most people would agree with that. Uh, so what does fragmentation in your book uh, mean in practice and in, in detail? I mean, it's all about maybe designing international institutions for a world in which the liberal dream of growing harmony is no longer feasible. So what do we do in the future? Well, before we get to um, what to do, can I say something about how this is very different from anything right. we've experienced before? And by, by which I mean the rise of China and, and the tension with the, the, the West. And I will actually end up by drawing an analogy between Britain and France in the 18th century. Right. So, if, I mean, this is a contest which is everywhere, it is in everything, it is ideological, and where neither side can easily knock out the other. If you think, if you go back to the Cold War with the Soviet Union, it had three of those, but not four. It wasn't, it wasn't in everything, it wasn't in commerce. And if you think about commerce broadly, that's a hell of a lot. I mean, our kind of more or less free market, regulated market system, it wasn't affected by the contest with the Soviet Union. If you go back to the struggle between the Second German Reich and, and Britain, that wasn't especially ideological. It was, it was more like a pure power struggle. It wasn't about ways of, of life. 
I think the nearest actually really is France and Britain in the in the 18th century. That was certainly everywhere. I mean, every bit of the planet, more or less. It was in everything. It was in commerce as well as as raw power. It was neither side could easily knock out of the other, which is why it took over a century, basically from 1689 to 1815. But crucially, it was ideological. I mean, and from, from the British point of view, and of course there was a French point of view, from the British point of view in the 18th century, what the English objected to was the prospect of universalist, absolutist monarchy based in France. At the end of the 18th century, it was universalist, revolutionary um, projects. Burke um, really brilliantly said, but the problem with France isn't, isn't its power, it's that it's the wrong kind of power. <laughs> and that's what we feel about China. It's not Chinese people, it's not Chinese civilization, it's the, it's the party. And I, I think this is something, the reason I labor this a bit is, is because it, we can't look back to the, the, the old Cold War or the struggles at the turn of the 20th century for, for, for examples of where we are. They're instructive in some respects, but this is just multidimensional and tractable in ways that we're, we're not really familiar with in the last 200 years, which is quite a long time. So in other words, it's, in, it's impossible to maybe to overstate the, the inexorable rise of China. There are no bumps in the road. It will continue this rise, both as an economic, but also a political power. And the so-called liberal democracies of the so-called West have just have to accept this new world order. Somehow, and, 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 and it's what we do in the face of that. Let me say that uh, it's, I think it is very likely that China will continue to, to rise or at least remain very powerful. There's a strain of thought in, in Western Europe, certainly in the United States, certainly in London, that the Chinese economy has all sorts of vulnerabilities and, and fragilities, which is all true, debt and, and property and, and provincial tax arrangements and so on, all that's true. And the Chinese economy could easily stumble. It, could, it might even stumble quite soon, who knows? And if and when it does, I expect pe a lot of people to say, that's it, it's all over, they're derailed, back to normal, a bit like Japan in the 1990s. And I don't think it will be at all like Japan, in that Japan was always under the American security umbrella. Um, it, had adopted, it had fused their Confucian heritage with our way, our system of, of, of government. Whereas China, I think, even if it moves sideways in economic terms, it is, it is large enough to, to increase its military power and if you like, hold down discontent among its people. And it's not that I think it is impossible that China will stumble. Of course, it's not impossible. They really might. But I don't think that's a safe assumption. And, and, and if we, if we, if policymakers, strategy makers started thinking in terms of, well, they'll stumble, well, so might we. I mean, you know, the West might stumble next November. I mean, who knows? But when it comes to the, to the United States stance of dealing with China, and it started actually, I suppose, before Biden, even under Trump, uh, about trying to alert the, its, its other Western allies that China was this terrible threat. And, and the European Union in particular didn't seem, to, in, the, in American eyes, to have woken up and smelt the coffee. And this whole debate about decoupling. Then all of a sudden you have uh, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, on behalf of the European Union, obviously, saying we should, we should talk about de-risking, oh. not decoupling. Yes, uh, and and the Americans now seem to have taken that rhetoric or even that strategy on board. Is that a 
Do you, do you see that? Did you read that that's the same way? Yeah, I, I do. I do, basically, although I don't think there's much significance in words. But let me right. just, let me just um, which I'll come back to, um, um, and it's important to come back to, but let me just say one thing. It actually began before Trump. It began under Obama, the pivot to Asia, right. uh, the Obama thing. And um, the Chinese-American standoff in the WTO, which led America to stop appointing or endorsing, approving the appointment of judges to the appellate board in the WTO. That began under President Obama, not under President Trump. Um, it, it is, of course, right that President Trump kind of um, gave it greater prominence. And actually, I think he gave it greater prominence in, in a way that is really quite important and not all bad, which is that the, the, the Obama pivot... This is a point about Europe. The Obama pivot, it's a very, it was a, I thought this at the time, it's not a very good metaphor because a pivot is something that moves towards something and away from something. Right. And the signal was we're moving away from Europe, we're moving away from Middle East, we're moving away from Central Asia. Whereas actually, um, as, as British history shows in the 19th century and before, if you're the hegemon or wanting to be the hegemon, you actually need to keep your eye on absolutely every spot of the world, and you need every friend you can you can possibly get. And I think America, for too long, thought that it could prevail in whatever way it wanted to prevail—not militarily necessarily—without friends. And I don't think that's true. And I think that's a big deal for Europe in all sorts of ways, including the um, um, the kind of the issues being aired by President Macron. But this de-risking versus decoupling thing, um, I think de-risking is a better um, word, but let's be clear, de-risking involves decoupling where we, where we are vulnerable to each other. And it's symmetric. And actually it's in our interests for China to decouple from us where they would be um, recklessly vulnerable to pressure from us, because that's a more dangerous world. So I, even before this language became, I mean, I started writing this book in 2017, 18, even, even before the language became current, I was in favor of some kind of decoupling. But the danger is, and it's a grave danger in a way, that it, it, it goes too far and topples mm. over into a spiral of protectionism. You know, we don't, we want to somehow leave ourselves less vulnerable, and we should want them to leave themselves less vulnerable to us, because that yeah. would be a world, but without pushing ourselves into the 1930s. And I think one of the big things about that is it's putting it in a slightly juvenile way. It means we need more accomplished leaders, bigger leaders, men and women, than we have needed for decades in a period where perhaps the opposite has been true. Right. Well, we haven't got time to discuss all the themes in your in your book, so let's try and focus, if we can, on what you these four scenarios for the next quarter to half century that you talk about at great length in the book. Could you maybe take us, me and the listeners, through these four scenarios, please, Paul? There, there, there are four. Let me list them to begin with. Um, lingering status quo, superpower struggle, new Cold War, and reshaped world order. Right. When I started writing the book, we were somewhere between lingering status quo and a bit superpower struggle. And we're now probably somewhere between superpower struggle 
and new new Cold War, but with elements of lingering status quo and, <laughs> and a reshaped world order, all four at once. Let me go through them. I mean, there is a lingering status quo in one area, which is, um, if you like, the supremacy of the dollar. The dollar, um, because of inertia, because of the economy, network economies and so on, um, the dollar is still the world's premier world currency. And although there are all sorts of efforts to kind of displace that, that just won't be easy. I mean, this came home to me in the last crisis when America blows up the world through its improvidence and its mortgage market. In any other country of the world, it's, it's, there would have been a run away from its currency. In, in fact, there was a run into U.S. Treasury bills. What do you want when the world is in peril? We want a U.S. Treasury bill because yeah, that's yeah. the safest asset in the world. And in a sense, I think that's the best argument for, well, China will want some of that. They would like to issue the world's currency because any great power would. But I think that's the one area in where there, a lingering status quo will, will linger for some considerable time. It's also, of course, the case, and this is really important for Europe, Europeans to recognize that world trade, rely, well, especially world trade in goods, relies on the sea lanes um, being open. It is the American Navy that keeps the sea lanes open around right. the world. I mean, I, I, something I, I, you know, I, I, I want Europe to be a great player in the new world, but we need to remember that at the moment, we rely on an American security umbrella, not just in a direct way, um, in direct conflicts, but also in keeping the sea lanes open and lots of other things. I mean, that's and we and we've had a good part of that deal. We have more leisure and we produce more consumption goods than um, than they do. Superpower struggle is 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 what essentially what I was talking about earlier. It's a contest between China right. and the West, not just America, that is in everywhere and everything. New Cold War is where that tips into bifurcated economic blocks. It becomes like the, it becomes, in a sense, the decoupling does go too far. And there is a free world sphere economy and there's a Chinese sphere economy and no doubt some non-aligned people who flip between the two. And the contest becomes one of proxy wars and military standoffs. And I think, by the way, that we should think of the Ukraine, the war on the Ukraine as the first proxy war. Right. I don't think um, that Putin would have been able to sustain um, prosecuting this war without Beijing's acquiescence. And I, so I really do think in one sense, we are seeing the first, the, the kind of an element of new Cold War. The, the fourth is, is, is a much longer-term prospect, but is already underway in a sense. In a restructured world order will be a new, a new top table of great powers. And any country with a vast population that can grow at a moderate, moderately fast rate for a number of years is going to become a power. And the obvious one at the moment with that prospect is India. Another one possibly is Indonesia. Rather lower down... The, the, the likelihood list at the moment is Brazil, but if ever they could get their act together, they could emerge. And the point of mentioning that is, look how already everybody is, if you like to put it again in a slightly juvenile way, fussing around the relations with India, wanting to be mm. um, India's 
Brecht's friend. And it's a very interesting thing how, how this great contest between the West and the Chinese party plays out will depend upon who makes mistakes. So China made a terrible mistake in 2020. I mean, I thought the biggest thing in world history in 2020 was not COVID, and I'm not belittling that. I had COVID pretty damn badly. Um, and lots of people had it a lot, lot um, worse, and of course lost loved ones. But I actually think that in history, the most significant thing was probably the, the Chinese incursion into Indian territory. And, right. and within, within weeks, India were reviving the idea of the Pacific, Indo-Pacific Quad, India, Japan, Australia, and the US, which was first, was first launched by Prime Minister Abe in his first term as Japanese president some time ago. And Delhi was distinctly cool on the idea, but China kind of pushed the border um, issue, and suddenly Delhi's very keen on that idea again. And that was a gift to the West by Beijing, not because it makes India our best friend. India is its own state with its own traditions, but because that, in a sense, it underlined that India needs friendship with the West, just as we need friendship with with India. All right. Well, let me then re maybe rephrase the question that I asked prematurely at the beginning about about forward-looking uh, solutions, if you like, or the, the a new world order, the new normal, if you like. Uh, we're living in a world of interdependencies. That's pretty clear. Uh, and how does the West and, and other constitutional democracies maintain their liberal traditions. Uh, they, we all have to accept in the West that uh, China and other powers want a seat at the table. Well, nothing wrong with that. We, we have to adapt. No, I think that's right. But but in a qualified right, though, which is that th there's greater for anybody. You can cooperate more comfortably with people that you share more in common and, and, and fear least. And I think of the world as, from anybody's point of view, any state's point of view, as a series of concentric circles. In the outer circle, there's the world of peaceful existence. You, you can't treat another state as beyond the pale unless you can keep them there. We can't keep China beyond the pale. We need peaceful coexistence with China. But, but we don't have to be over-dependent on them. We should, our trade with them should be, should be thin in ways that enhance prosperity but don't make us vulnerable in in not just in wars, but in pandemics or anything, any other catastrophes that can occur. As you move in, as you as you, I think the next circle, if you like, is a circle that recognizes and tries to live by the most basic human rights. And you can you can do more with them because you fear them less. Because it doesn't mean they're entirely safe, but you can do more with them. And as you move in. You, you share, you move away from a thin world to a thicker world. And you, the, the EU is a great example of this because EU states cooperate more among themselves than they do with the United States of America. Right. But they still, but they still cooperate a lot with the United States of America. They're not, but mutually, actually, not mutually exclusive, obviously. It's not mutually exclusive. And I think we need to be, we're going to need to be, if you like, slightly more refined about where there are mutual interests and where those mutual interests carry risks and where they don't. And I mean, at least one government trade organization has, has started to use this um, structure of concentric circles to draw maps of, right. of friends and semi-friends and not so friendly, et cetera. And I think that's a potential contribution to, 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 to the policy world.
The, um, I think, by the way, that this is a hell of a challenge for business people. Yeah. I mean, let me give it, I mean the, the head of Mercedes, I think, said a few um, weeks ago, or at least was reported in the FD as saying, decoupling from, uh, uncoupling from China is unthinkable. Well, it is only unthinkable if it's thinkable to decouple from America and Europe. Yeah. Um, and if that's not what's meant, maybe saying it was unthinkable means I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Um, because uh, because unthinkable isn't the same as undesirable or unlikely. And I, I, I'm not having a go at the particular person. The point is that I think that like the rest of us, people that lead vast multinationals are used to a world of, of, of peaceful coexistence. They're not used to, uh, to a, a world where government may have to be more brutal. After all, you know, in, in, in the First World War, Merck was cut up into two businesses, one in the United States, one in Germany, and they've never been reunited. And, and business people will do better if rather than treating things as unthinkable, they, they actually think them through, if only very privately. My experience of being involved in crisis management and watching people in crisis management in different sectors and so on, is that people do a bit better when they're psychologically prepared. And I, I think that lots of business people aren't psychologically prepared um, for, for what may lie ahead. And the, the point isn't that I think it will happen. It's to be prepared for, for reasonably plausible bad outcomes. Well, in this last part of this chat, Paul, um, the phrase, your phrase, I quoted back at you at the very beginning, uh, geoeconomics within geopolitics. Let's let's maybe finish on that and since you bring in the business dimension. Uh, the geopolitical contest increasingly being waged uh, through economic means, sanctions or the or the the fight, the race to dominate technology standards and international bodies and all that kind of thing. That's a new world that, that the West has to get used to as well, right? Where and businesses by extension, where it's not just a Western influence organization which sets standards, for example, it's going to be other kinds of new uh, new bodies yet to be created, maybe. Yes, I agree, and it and it means you know, having um, talked about multinationals in the policy world, it means that silos are dangerous. I mean, the book starts with a story, which is true, of um, when I was deputy governor of the Bank of England, someone walking into my office and saying, "The Federal Reserve, the U.S. central bank, has refused India a swap line. It doesn't matter what a swap line is; it's just a line of credit." My response was, um, don't they realize India is going to be a power? Right. Yeah. You know, don't, 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 maybe the Federal Reserve could, could decide that, but then you need a lot of fussing by the State Department and the White House to kind of, of yeah. it's, and I, I think we've lived in a world where if you were doing monetary policy, you didn't really need to know anything about trade policy. Mm. You don't need to know trade economics, but not trade policy. Whereas now, I think trade policy brings everything together in a sense. You need to know about security policy and and, and health policy and environmental policy. It's it's and it's not that everybody in government should be doing everybody's business. It's that you need to be slightly more literate in your colleagues' missions so that you can tell them and persuade them that you're doing something that will affect them. I mean, in a nutshell, everything ends up having a national security element. I mean. Right. Yeah. In my old field, I mean, the West cannot afford another financial crisis. Right. Um, that that would be a gift to to 
Beijing. And, and as you say, over the decades, we're going to have to get used to kind of making international policy in, in fora where new, new powers wield power. And I think that's a challenge for Europe. One is, if I can end on this, perhaps, one is seeing Europe, kind of particularly Paris, for reasons I understand. So actually, Europe needs to stand on its own. Well, in some ways, I find that attractive, but it will be, it would take decades and decades to get to a position where we could defend ourselves on our own. Mm. You know, at the moment, Paris can't even increase its pension limit age. Yeah. And asking people to go to war to defend themselves is asking a lot more than that. And this is, this is not to criticize at all. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of absolutely with the, with the strategy, but we shouldn't have any illusions that th these are long-term aims, and actually long-term aims that could make the world more dangerous without care, two great Western powers of equal hard power might make the world more dangerous rather than a leader. But, you know, this is how we've lived since the Second World War. It's both very frustrating and very difficult to move out of it and maybe risky to move out of it. But that's why we need big people as leaders. And in that respect, I think Paris thinking geopolitically is really good, really yeah. good. Well, one brief final question for me then, Paul, and we have to finish. So I suspect part of the motivation for this book was to get leaders, uh, big leaders, you're saying, to, to maybe focus on these issues. Um, how optimistic, as, as much as you can be, are you that there is now a, a, a much needed focus on the issues you've been, that you raise in your book? Or are there worrying signs that leaders have these natural reflexes to, to uh, hide behind their national borders and, and just I, focus I, on the domestic? <laughs> I think a bit of both. I think for various reasons located in its own history, I think Paris does think more geopolitically. I think in Germany, I don't think Germany would have shifted at all were it not for the Ukraine war. Right. I think Germany has lived too long as a kind of quasi-mercantilist state, enjoying an undervalued Deutschmark and thinking of itself as a great exporting nation. And I understand that in its own circumstances. It's meant to be descriptive, not critical. But it's going to need to think in a broader way, given the challenges that lie ahead. You know, the, the oh, well, we can't break off from China because we export lots there. I mean, you know, these ties aren't as close as Britain, Britain and Germany before the First World War. Right. And it would have been a very, very good thing if the First World War hadn't happened. <laughs> well, on, that, on that note, uh, we have to leave it there. Paul Tucker, thank you very much for your time. So thank you, Paul. See you.